All right, Ezekiel chapter 38, Ezekiel chapter 38. We're not going to do a lot of review. Just remember, we know we've got 37 down pretty good, right? Right, 37 is about Israel being resurrected, regenerated, restored, God in the midst of them, all of those things. We've got that down. We don't have any problem. Then we come to 38. We start with issues about chronological order and all kinds of things. What we do know that is in chapter 38, there is a chief prince. There is a leader named Gog. And he is of the land of the area of Magog, right? And that him and a number of a confederacy of nations are going to come against Israel. And that's, that's what we've known so far. When they come against Israel, this is very, very, very important. It seems, the text seems to indicate that Israel will be in a time of safety, prosperity, no walls, no gates, and just thinking everything is going okay when God comes upon them. And it seems God is going to step in to prevent anything from happening to them. What, where we end, and I'm not going to go back and review everything else. I mean, that's like the summary of a summary of a summary, okay? But the, um, what we're going to do is we ended with kind of a, a difficulty, right? Because all of a sudden in this section, God seems to indicate that he prophesied about this happening at all times. In fact, that is found in Ezekiel 38. Verse 17, thus saith the Lord, art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which I prophesied in those days, many years, that I would bring thee against them? Now, please note, God seemed, now, now there's a lot going on in this verse, right? We focused on the fact that there's a prophecy of old. We'll, we'll go back to fixing that problem. But what else jumps out of that, in that passage at you? What else jumps off the page? God is the one. Remember, we thought it was implied earlier on when it said that all of a sudden a thought's going to come into the mind of Gog and he's going to be like, oh, look, I'm going to go after Israel. This seems to imply who places the thought there. This seems to be direct confirmation. God puts the thought in his mind. God is the one who directs the entire situation. And that supposedly he told Israel in the past this was going to happen. All right, so we started looking at scriptures that are suggested for the fulfillment of this, right? The first one that was suggested, we didn't think really did a lot of good. That was what? Does anybody remember? Psalm 2, right? That was Psalm 2. And it does seem to speak of people coming together to fight against God, but Ezekiel 38 is more about people coming to fight against Israel. But then you can say if they're fighting against Israel, they're fighting against God. But how can God, they fight against God when God is the one who's telling them to come fight against me? The whole thing seems confusing, but I don't think Psalm 2 really, put it this way, Psalm 2 is not very clear, is it? Now, it does speak of a time where many in the world will come against God. Now, we could argue, is that Revelation 21? Is that, or Revelation 20, verse 7, is that, is that at the end of the millennium? Maybe. Does, is Psalm 2 speaking of that? Well, then if it is, then it would fit Ezekiel 38. So I don't know if we, I don't know. All right. The second passage that was suggested was Isaiah 29, and we did not like that one because Isaiah 29 seemed to imply that somehow Jerusalem would suffer, and this seems to imply that they're not going to suffer. Right. So we, we didn't think that one worked. The third one we didn't get to, Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. We won't even worry about dating at this point. We'll just go to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. And they give us verse 20. They give us one verse. I cannot stand when they do that. All right. Because it's almost going to be impossible to try to draw any conclusion, isn't it? Okay, uh, someone suggested 2.18. Let's go to Joel 2.18. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people? Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and you should be satisfied therewith, and I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen, but I will remove far off from you the northern army. And will drive them into a land barren and desolate with his face towards the east sea. 
and his hinder part towards the utmost sea, and his stink shall come up, and his ill savor shall come up, because he hath done great things. All right, well, it does seem that God's going to step in and fight someone coming from the north. Does that fit? Maybe. Well, what do we need to determine? When was Joel written? There we go. Or the dating of Joel's prophecy. So let's figure that out really quick. Okay. All right. That would be a little before. It would be close. It wouldn't be like a way back in old times. Yeah, we're get, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get to that one next. All right. Okay. Uh, when the events of the book happen, unknown, perhaps either the ninth or fifth century. Okay, that, 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 that's a pretty wide, that, that one's not super helpful, is it? That's not super helpful. Okay, so I don't know if that would fit. Possibly, maybe. Now, Joel 2 does seem to describe God's going to step in and go after these armies. Okay, so that, that's helpful. But there's a lot of situations where God promises to step in and do that, right? He does, you know, ultimately he destroys whom? The Babylonians, right? But that's after their captivity, so don't know, right? So dating there is not super helpful. You can grab a Bible dictionary and just see if they throw anything else in there about Jill, if you want to look really quick. We can look really quick and just see Bible dictionaries. Just see if we have a date. I don't know if it's going to be helpful, but we can try. See if there's any more certainty. The way it sounds in the book of Ezekiel, it has to be a long time before, but... It doesn't have to be written down. But we're, but we're just trying to look. If it, if it says there's a past prophecy, we want to know if we can find where it's written down, then we have that prophecy that may give us more clues to know the when, where, what, how. So, yeah. So that's, yeah. It doesn't, we don't need it to be written down. But. Okay, so. Yeah, so we have no clue. So we can't. All right. Okay. So now 640 to 609 would be a little bit before Ezekiel, right? Would be, but not of old, not nothing that long. I mean, it's a, you know, almost in, in biblical times, you almost say it's contemporary, right? So not super helpful. All right. Go to Joel 3. There's another passage. Joel 3. This one takes up a large section. Joel 3, starting in verse 9. Everybody ready? We're just going to try to read through this relatively quick, but I just want you to see this. All right, here we go. Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come all ye heathen. Gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause the mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be weakened and come up the valley of Jehoshaphat. Uh, what? Dead. Awaken, I'm sorry, I said weakened. Okay. Wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full, the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitude, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel." So shall you know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her any more. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters, and a fountain shall come forth out of the house of the Lord." 
shall the water val- shall water valley of Shittim. Egypt shall be desolation. Edom shall be desolate wilderness for the violence against the children of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall dwell forever and Jerusalem from generation to generation for I will cleanse their blood that I have not... Uh, that I have not cleansed, for the Lord dwelleth in Zion. Now, that does seem like a major war. Does seem like a bunch of people coming against Israel. The only problem is, you put that all together, what does that, where does that seem to fit? Seems to fit happening chapter 19 of Revelation, not chapter 20. That seems to describe a war happening, and then what happens after that? God's going to be in their midst. God's going to be with them. God, that, that, that seems to set up the millennial kingdom. See that? So, well, you see the difficulty here, right? I mean, just think about this. In your Bible, just think about it. I want everyone to pay attention. In Revelation 19 and in Revelation 20, we both have these absolutely apocalyptic type wars, right? And they're, they're separated by basically a thousand years. So whenever you go back and find these prophecies about a great war and all these people coming and there's going to be a great slaughter, you, is it 19 or is it 20? Which one do we have the most detail about? 19, we have far more detail. 20, what details do we have? Yeah, I mean, do we, I mean we don't have much, do we, right? So, so it's easier sometimes to connect it with 19. Right? But so I, I don't know if that would even help. I don't know. There's another one. Another one they have is Zechariah 12, which everyone turns to Zechariah 12 at some point and whenever dealing with these subjects. Zechariah 12. All right, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1. Let's at least look at it. Everybody ready? Zechariah 12, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretched forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. Now, the one thing we can dogmatically assert, Right? Now, we could take the time right now, but it would take us away from Ezekiel 38. If you ever want to just do your own study, you should find all the Old Testament passages that speak of armies coming against Israel and God's going to intervene and destroy them. Because it's mentioned quite a few times. It's mentioned quite a few times. So then you have to just, so just know that, I mean, like, I don't know how you spiritualize that this is mentioned over and over and over and over. It always gets very specific in some cases. It's specific nations, Judah, Jerusalem. I don't know how you spiritualize all of that, but it's a common theme in the Bible. All right. Then what happens? Verse three. And in that day, will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all the people? All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. The whole earth may come against uh, Jerusalem, but what's going to happen to them? They're going to be cut into pieces. All right. In that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment, his rider with madness. I will open mine eye upon the house of Judah and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength and the Lord of hosts, their God. And that day will I make the governor of Judah like a hearth of fire among the wood, like a torch of fire and a sheaf, and they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. Right? I think you get the idea that at some point, this is speaking of a war, where I, almost everyone's coming against Israel, and what's going to happen? They're going to be destroyed. Now, does that fit 19, or does that fit 21? Or 20, I'm sorry. 19 or 20. Do you see where the struggles can be? I, I, I mean, it, it could... I, I, well, it has Judah and Jerusalem. Well, the capital, capital of Judah. Yeah, so, right. So, 
Yeah, I mean, it, the only point is, even if, it, even if we try to make a big significance out of that, the only problem is we have nothing historical that would, this would fit. And so, eh, when Judah came out of Babylonian captivity, that does not fit. That does not come even anywhere close to what happened there. So, um, yeah, but it, once again, it's another what? Another battle, another battle. I don't know if that is, I don't think that's the prophecy of Gog or Magog. I don't know, maybe, I don't even know how you try to connect it. You, you can just see, we could go, look, there are scriptures after scripture after scripture that is thrown at this as being the possible prophecy. I'm going to argue if it was, if, it, if everyone knew, then they wouldn't just throw all these random scriptures at us, right? Nobody seems to really know. He made a prophecy. We may not know which one it is. Okay? And you know what makes it, we make it difficult? Every Old Testament scripture that we can find, what are we absolutely certain about those Old Testament scriptures that people say points to the fulfillment of God giving a prophecy about uh, Gog and Magog? What we can definitively know is not one of those Old Testament passages will do what? Will actually say Gog or Magog. Because that doesn't appear again until Revelation 20, which that obviously is not the prophecy. That's the fulfillment of the prophecy. So, or a fulfillment of some prophecy. We don't even know that for sure. All right, so I'm not going to continue looking at all of these because it just goes on and on. There's multiple chapters in Isaiah. And it just, we, we could just sit here and read all night. And at some point, we're just going to be like, none of them are going to be dogmatic. There's just no way to be sure. They're going to talk about armies coming against Israel and God intervening. And then we're going to, guess what I'm going to say every time? Is that Revelation 19 or is that Revelation 20? Is that Revelation 19 or is that Revelation 20? And guess what you guys are going to do every time? I don't know. So then we're not going to get anywhere. So let's go back to Ezekiel and then let's see if, how far we can get here. All right. Because we're getting close to the end of this chapter. So what can we definitively say? That God, through his prophets, did prophesy that this was going to happen in the past. We just may not know which prophet. We may not know when. We may not know where. And guess what? We may not have it in any recorded form. Verse 18. And it shall come to pass at the same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face. So again, Isn't this just hard to comprehend from a philosophical standpoint? Who's the one who's making it happen? God. And then who's the one getting mad that it's happening? Like, from a philosophical standpoint, it's always weird to me. Well, I think everyone is very different as people, right? I mean, we know that. Everyone is different. Some of you and I don't know how it would work here, but between people online and people in this building, some of you, when you read Ezekiel 38, you are probably not bothered at all. You're just like, oh, I wonder when this happens, where this happens, how this happens. You may not even care one way or the other. Some will be focused on the when, the where, and the how. For me, I don't care about the when, the where, and the how. I'm more worried about the why. It makes no sense. God's going to be like, you... And those nations, I'm going to make do something. Then I'm going to be ticked off that you did it. And then I'm going to kill all of you. <laughs> that's, like, who, that's, a, that's a story that any rational person should be like. That's kind of disturbing. Let's make it very clear. If that's in any other religious book, we condemn it. And we talk about your God is messed up. Your God is twisted. But because it's in our Bible, we all do what? Okay, it's all good. So just make sure you understand when you say, "Ah, it's all good. Skeptics look at you and go, you've got mental problems. You've got serious mental problems. And you got to be able to acknowledge that it does. Look, I'm not going to pretend that that sounds like this is just a normal story. God's like, hey, I'm the one doing this. But then what does the text literally say? My fury shall come up in my face. Well, hey God, there's an easy way for you not to get mad. 
<laughs> don't make them come up against Israel. Right? And then what does he say? For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. So that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. Whoa. So this sounds like it's going to be a serious issue. That sounds a little bit like Zechariah, does it not? Didn't that not sound a little bit like Zechariah? Okay, you see why they would make connected to Zechariah? Right, there's a little bit of similar things. Now, I don't know which walls are falling down because supposedly Israel doesn't have any walls at this time, but that's a whole different subject, right? And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains. When he says I'm going to call for a sword against him, who is he referring to? Gog, right? Saith the Lord God, every man's sword shall be against his brother and I will plead against him with pestilence. Uh, and with blood, and I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him and overflowing rain and great hellstones, fire and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations that they shall know that I am the Lord. Now, if you need a theological answer for why God is going to do this absurd thing from a human perspective, verse 23 gives you your answer. What are the reasons he's going to do this? Magnify myself, sanctify myself, and be known. He's going to exalt himself. How how is he going to exalt himself? He's going to show that he's greater than Gog, the chief prince, and a confederacy of nations are not greater than God. God himself is going to stop them. Right? How, How is he going to sanctify himself? He's setting himself apart from what? Every other God, every other idol. And how is he going to be known? Because everyone's going to know Israel didn't do this. America didn't do this. God did this. All right? So that's the, that's the theological reason why. Now, if a skeptic doesn't like that, I can understand they don't like it. But that, what's the only answer you can offer? Those, that's the three answers. Do I understand it? No. Does it make literally any sense to me? Zero. Does it seem twisted from a human perspective? Very. But if God is real and his word is true, guess what? God, is God, does God worry that I don't understand it or don't like it? He's not too worried at all. Okay. I wish he would consider my great insight, but, you know, it, it's, it's not, he's not going to listen. He's not. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's not going to listen, all right? So, are you ready now? We're going to go through a long summary here, and I want you, you may want to write a lot of this down. I'm going to try to go slow here, okay? Everyone ready? I'm going to go find my, uh, everything in 38, all right? So here we go, all right? Uh, No, this is not AI, all right? Just not AI. I used AI this morning, but not, not, I could use AI right now, but I won't ask AI any questions right now. Right. The emphasis on this dramatic battle, you don't have to write anything down right now, I'll tell you when. The emphasis on this dramatic battle in the latter days has led many to wonder and speculate when Gog and his allies would attack Israel. Admittedly, some regard Ezekiel 38 and 39 as nothing more than a prophetic parable that says God will protect his people. Such a casual approach to these chapters seem to lack serious regard for the text and its meaning. I agree. Now, I can understand why you would want to say it's just a parable. Because guess what you, you, guess what you don't have to do? You have to figure anything out. I love that. That's, that's the same reason 40 to 48, the end of the book. That's why those chapters, people just like, I don't know. It's a parable. It's a picture. Because... Because it's so confusing, confounding, and I don't have a clue what's going on. Nobody has a clue what's going on. Nobody really has a clue what's going on here, if they're they're honest with themselves. All right? The time element was distinctly stated as in the latter years, which is equivalent to the latter days of Ezekiel 38. No student of prophecy can afford to overlook this phrase in the Old Testament or its parallel in the New Testament. Though there is much we do not know about Gog's attack against Israel, 
There is collectively much we do know. Now, they've placed these in bullet points. These are in bullet points of what we do know. So under all of those notes, we're going to write down what we do know. All right? And bullet points. All right? You ready? Okay? Someone keep track of the numbers because I'm going to get them all mixed up. I don't have numbers down. I just have, I have them putting down in bullet points. All right? Here we go. You ready? So someone number them, and when I get the numbers all messed up, tell me how bad I messed them up. Are you ready? Here we go. Number one, a leader from the north, Gog, who was not an ancient enemy of Israel, will lead a confederation of nations against Israel. And that's 38, 1 through 6. So I'll go through that again. Number one, a leader from the north, Gog, who was not an ancient enemy of Israel, will lead a confederation of nations against Israel. And we read about that in 38 verses 1 through 6. I think we can agree on that, don't you? All right. Now, before we proceed, hermeneutically, what am I doing here? Just so that you can understand the process. Whenever you come to a passage, this is a hermeneutical principle. This should be chiseled in stone. Everybody ready? When you come to a passage where there is much that we do not know, where there is much confusion, there is nothing but debate. Don't enter into the debate. Step back from the uh, the debate and simply state what is clearly known. Do not engage in a debate until you first establish what is clearly known. And it drives me crazy when people want to argue that they won't do that. I can plead with people. I can beg with people. Stop arguing. Go home and figure out what we can know. Because if you figure out what is clearly known in Scripture, and I figure what's clearly known in Scripture, then we should be able to agree on what is clearly known. It's like if I'm going to debate someone on infant baptism. What is clearly known in Scripture? What is absolutely clearly known in Scripture about infant baptism? We have no record of an infant ever being baptized. We don't even have a command to baptize babies other than if they believe. Believe and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. That's what we have. We have a better argument in Scripture that salvation is connected to baptism than we ever have than baptism is for a baby or for an unbeliever. And you say, well, we got households, but that doesn't tell you anything, right? You're making all kinds of assumptions because I can immediately go to the Old Testament and I got a household. His name is Abram and his wife's name is Sarai and they don't have a baby in that family for... A lot of years. So don't tell me there aren't people in the Bible that every household had to have a baby. There's no, that is just ridiculous when I can go right to Genesis and prove that's not the case. And are there not other women in the Bible that were barren? I mean, even when you get to the New Testament, wouldn't someone barren? Right? So, I mean, that, that, that those things happen. So, so, now, once you establish that, then both sides should be able to agree, you're right. There's not a clear verse on this. Okay, well, then that, that but people get mad when you do that. They don't want to do that. They just want to argue and argue and argue and say, well, you, as someone who used to go to this church who argued with me about infant baptism, well, you just need to read Calvin's Institutes. That's, that's what I need to do? I need to read Calvin's Institutes. First, That's ridiculous if someone would tell me that I need to read them because I think I've read them, I don't know, a couple of times. Oh, oh, and they're in our library. Oh, and all of Calvin's commentaries are in our library. So it's not like I, I, did I ever tell any of you not to read Calvin? But when you have to revert to the fact that you're telling me I need to read Calvin, what have you just now made the authority? You're telling me to read Calvin because in Calvin's Institutes, he's got like 80... I don't know what it's called. 80-something reasons why infant baptism is found in Scripture. It's, it's some crazy... The first time I ever came across it, I was like, this is insane. I think the arguments are ridiculous. But you know why? You have to point me there? Because you can't point me to where.
Well, that, yeah, that's why well, I've, I've told people to read them over and over and over because that's where you will know that these, these arguments, right? So I, I cannot stress this enough. So in biblical hermeneutics, when we come to something we're like, whenever you read a commentary and they say something like, there's multiple explanations, no one really knows, the answer is unclear, what does that tell you to do as a Bible student? Stop what I'm doing and forget about what? Forget about interpretation and focus on observation and simply make sure I know what I know. And then whenever I start struggling with what I don't know and I get confused and I fall, what am I going to land on? What you do know. And does that not give you some sense of stability theologically? That's what we need is that stability. Or you'll just, be, you'll just get confused and bounce around and be tossed to and fro. You've got to learn how to figure out what is clearly seen. All right. So what was point number one? I'm getting ready to sneeze. No. Okay. Good. A leader from the North Gog, who was not an ancient enemy of Israel, will lead a confederate of nations against, Eze- uh, against Israel, not against Ezekiel. And that's Ezekiel 38, 1 through 6. And I think those verses lay that out relatively clear. Right? M- maybe, I, we may argue that we can't say for sure it's the North, but I think we, we are able to say that many will put those, some of those areas North. Okay, so, all right. Number two. He will be motivated. Now, now, okay, we're going to have a problem with this one, all right? We may reword this one. I'm going I'm to read it as it is worded, but I think you're going to see where I have problems here. He will be motivated by his own evil plans and pulled by God. They claim it's his own evil plan and pulled by God. They quote Ezekiel 38.10. Everyone look at Ezekiel 38.10 and tell me what you find here. He's going to think an evil thought. Now we, we determined and felt that God is the one who said he's going to do this, right? So I need you to look through the text, which we have already read, right? This is like a, uh, a, a, a little challenge. And I want you to determine in Ezekiel 38 alone, who seems to be the one instigating and causing this to happen. And, and give me your best answer. Give me your best answer. We just, we've already read all of the verses, so. See what you can come up with. We may change, we may rewrite this one to our own. Then we have a deep discussion about this just maybe 10 minutes ago. Okay. Okay, yeah. Look back over it and see what you can find. Okay. Okay. He says it in 16, I will bring thee against my land that the heathen may know me when I will be sanctified in thee, O God, before their eyes. Verse 17, thus says the Lord God, art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servant, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them. Does it not seem like God is the one directing this? Now they take the fact that he gets this thought. This thought is that it's from him. I don't know. Because it, it, it almost as if God's saying, like, the thought's going to pop into your head, but it's, it's like, he's, if God's the one saying, I'm going to bring you against me, how is he going to bring you against me? 
Because he's going to give you the thought to come against me, right? Well, people's always responsible. I mean, uh, the people who crucified Christ, he says, it was predetermined that you did it, but he still referred to them. They're still guilty. We're not here, I'm not here to excuse anyone's guilt. I just, I just think that I would state this. I, 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 I mean, you can, we could have a discussion here, but I would probably state this. He will be, Gog will be motivated or pulled or led by God to come against Israel. I think I would state God is the, is the source of it. And, 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 even, and even if you say, well, no, 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 no. Even if you try to say that Gog is motivated by his own evil desires, well, I, I, don't, I, I don't know if we remember this, but God, God he, has an evil, he has an evil nature for what reason? God can remove the evil nature, right? At any point in any time, right? Do I? Okay, right. So, yeah, I mean, but that gets into a whole deeper issue, right? That gets into a whole deeper issue. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I think God is the, is the one doing the action. They want to try to make it both. It's, the, the way they want to picture it is, God was walking one day and was like, I've got an evil idea. I'm going to go against Israel. And then God's like, all right, then I'm going to bring you up here. You got the idea, I'll bring you. I just don't think it works that way. It's like God, oh, I mean, so if God prophesied it, then I already planned it. Like, I, I, I just, I, that gets to that weird, weird I, I know people, why do people get so worried about trying to word it that way? They want to get God off, no, they just want to get God off the hook. They just, they, nobody wants God to be guilty or responsible for anything. You know, it's like God's like, oh no, I don't know what's happening. Whoa, what is it? Like, because, because if you have God in charge, then it does raise deep philosophical questions about God. And I understand that, but it's not my fault. I, what are, where do all the problems begin? Genesis 1.1, as soon as we read in the beginning God, and what's the next word? Created, and that's the problem. Because the God who created is the God who knew what would happen when he created and did nothing to stop the very thing that happened. And he could have eliminated it. Well, one, he could have never created Satan. Two, he didn't have to give them a source of temptation in the garden, right? Three, after they sinned, he could have just wiped them all out and stopped and be done with it. Because did he need anybody? No. So that God is, I don't care how we want to get God off the hook. He cannot be taken off the hook. He can't. So I'm going to say number two, God will be, how would we say? Be led by God to come against Israel. There we go. Uh, I'm going to put 38, 16, and 17, but you can throw 10 in there. You can throw 10 in there. That's where he gets the thought. But I think he gets the thought because God put the thought there. That's my understanding. I know that's a little bit more interpretation, but we can definitely say, maybe, maybe we should do this. Maybe we should do this. Maybe we should do this, all right? Because we want to try to be observational, right? Could we say this? Gog, how does the verse read where he says he'll get a thought? What's the exact verbiage? Okay, so let's do this. Gog had evil thoughts about coming against Israel. And yet God is stated as the one who will bring Gog against Israel. Let's do it that way. Is, is that more observational? I know. See, that's why you have to write in pencil in this church, right? See, if you write in pencil, you can just erase it, okay? But isn't that better? Isn't that more fair? Is that fair? Okay, Gog had an evil thought and God brought Gog against Israel because it, God literally says in 16, 17, I'm going to bring you up. I'm going I'm to do it. So Gog had an evil thought and God will bring him up. Therefore, we, what, are we, what are we leaving out by doing, writing it that way? We're leaving out interpretation. Right? We're leaving out interpretation. I wanted to try to interpret it because it's what we tend to do, but I just stopped myself so because that was bad. I was I was wrong. I was wrong to do that. All right? 
Well, we, we got to try we, we to try not to do that. All right. So number one, a leader from the North Gog who was not an ancient enemy of Israel will lead a confederation of nations against Israel. Ezekiel 38, one through six. Gog will have an evil thought to go against Israel, come up against Israel, and God will bring him up against Israel. That's Ezekiel 38, 10, and Ezekiel 38, 16, and 17. Y'all like that? We got that? Is that good? I think it's good. I think, it's, I think that's fair. All right. Go to 30, Ezekiel 38, 8, and read it and tell me what you see. Yeah, read it and tell me what you see. 38, 8, what do you see? After many days thou shalt be visited in the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been uh, always always waste, but it is brought forth out of the nations and they shall dwell safely, all of them. This is how some describe this. It will happen in the latter days distant from Ezekiel's time. They're saying that's giving a time and that it's going to happen in it says, uh, in the latter years. Everybody see that? In the latter years. Does that, how does the NIV translate it? I doubt it says latter years. After many days, After many days continue reading. That's it? Okay, it does. In future years. There we go, in future years. So they, their argument is that this will happen in latter days, distant from Ezekiel's time. Don't put distant from Ezekiel's time. Just put this in the latter years or in the future years. This will happen in the future years. Just put in the future years because we want to at least try to be, we don't want to try to interpret what that means, right? By saying distant from Ezekiel's time, that's more of an interpretation. Agreed? Okay. Does everybody have a problem with that? Yeah, in the latter years, this will happen. Or in the future years, depending on which translation you want to go with. Ezekiel 38, 8. Okay. So that's one, two, three. Here's number four. You ready? Now, let me just try to read this and then we'll try to work it out. All right, here we go. The allied nations will come from every point on the compass, including Persia, and peoples from the lands of Libya, Ethiopia. Okay, and I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip because they throw some things in here I don't like because I think it's too much interpretation. So let's do this. The these nations will come from every point on the compass. How does the scriptures actually read in thirty-eight one through six? They don't say every point of the compass, do they? No. So what do they actually say in the text? Does it say four corners of the earth or anything along those lines? Okay. Okay, let's just say this. From the far north. Let's just say, many nations will come with Gog, and these nations include, let's list all the nations. What would be all the nations or lands that are included? Go Look, 38, 1 through 6. Let's list them. Magog, Meshach, Tubal. Yeah, we need to just write them down. Okay, hang on. Let's go slow. Let's go slow. It's right there in 38, 1 through 6. Everybody got the first one? Okay, Magog, right? Next. Meshach, third. Tubal. Okay, what did he say? Vindigo. Whatever. Whatever. Okay. Whatever. What were their real names? Okay. That's, that's a Bible pop quiz. Okay. All right. Okay. Right. Um, hang on. Okay. What's the next one? Persia. Cush. Okay. Okay. Which uh, the and the King James says. Okay, then we put Ethiopia. What, can you not find it? Oh, I was trying to find Kush. Oh, yeah, that, that's that NIV stuff going on back there. Okay, right. Okay. 
Arput, right? As Libby, okay. Arput, put, Lib. Let's, we're going to put the King James since, you know, that's what we use. Okay. King, the King James has Gomer. Okay, put Gomer down. And Tagarma. Okay. There we go. Now, what? Maybe a tribe, peoples, right? Yeah, we're putting it. What, what, here's what I, see, if, if I go with this, if I go with like how a commentary summarizes it, guess what they start doing? Modern day Iran, modern Turkey, uh, Armenia, Germany. They just start try. they just start connecting it to modern nations. We're not going to do that. Do what? I don't know where they get it, but I'm just saying, we're not going to do that. We're not going to play that game. Okay? Why, why are we not going to do that? Well, because, well, then we have to spend hours trying to figure out, well, okay, Persia has a, we could connect Persia to Iran, right? I mean, that, that obviously makes a little bit more sense, right? But I'm just saying, we, I'm not going to play that game because then it's, it, it, just, it just becomes wild speculation. I mean, like, Already trying to connect much of this to Russia is just ridiculous. We've already demonstrated this morning there's no justification for that. So I'm not going to sit there and go, well, this per, this land, this is modern day this. Maybe, no, we're just going to go with what it states. All right, that's what we're going to state. Because what we're doing what? Observation. We're doing observation. All right, so how can we say that? God will come up with many nations and these nations include Okay, well, I, we, okay. Magog. Okay, you got all of those? Okay, good. All right, and that's Ezekiel 38, 1 through 6. You can put that down as the reference. All right, then the next one will be number what? Five, okay. Uh, how do we want to look at this? Look at Ezekiel 38, 4 through 6. Look at 4 through 6. I'm going to read this. You tell me if you think this is an accurate observation. Gog and his allies will come up as a massive, swift, and well-equipped army. Do you think that's a good observational statement? Or do you think it's too interpretive? Okay. We don't or we do? Okay, all right. So we got no problem. Armor. Okay. Okay, so we're going to put Gog and his allies will come up as a massive, swift, and well-equipped army. That's what we're going to put down. Okay. We'll come up with his allies as a massive, swift, and well-equipped army. Sounds good. Possibly, yeah. I mean, a storm can move relatively quick, right? See it. You can put... Yeah, you would throw in nine, throw in nine. Yeah, throw in, you can throw in nine there. Okay. All right, so that, that seems to fit. Gog and allies will come as a massive, swift, and well-equipped army. Okay. All right. Everybody ready for the next one? All right. Um, Gog will come against Israel when they are gathered back to their land. Ezekiel 38, 8 and 12. Look at Ezekiel 38, 8 and 12 and see if we can agree that that's an observational statement, not an interpretive statement. We don't want interpretation here as much as possible. Eight and twelve. Gog, Gog will come against Israel when they are gathered back to their land. Ezekiel thirty-eight, eight and twelve. And we talked about this already when we spent all the time, all the hours we've already worked on this. Yeah, I mean, 
Yeah, they're going to be back in their land, right? Remember, that's the... Yeah, and remember, we thought that was significant because 37, if we're going to say that there's any kind of chronological order going, it fits pretty good, right? 37, they're back in the land. 38, they're back in the land. They're back in the land. Then God gets a thought, boom. And then God leads him to go, let's go get rid of Israel. All right, that sounds good. All right, next, God will come against Israel when they enjoy considerable safety. 38, 8. Does that sound good when it says 8? How does that describe their safety in 38, 8? All right, they should, they're, 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 they're chilling out. They're safe. Uh, yeah, yeah, 38, 11. There's no walls, there's no gates, there's no bars, there's no whatever, however your translation puts it. Uh, I said 38, 8, and then we added 11. When Israel, God will come against Israel when they enjoy considerable safety. They're going to be like, everything is good. Everything is great. All right. Everybody ready for the next one? There's a lot of these. Gog will come against Israel when they are prosperous. Ezekiel 38, 12 through 13. 12 through 13. Do we agree with this? I know we stated it as dogmatic a fact earlier on, but now we're checking it. 12 through 13. Yeah, they've gotten cattle, goods, right? Everybody see that? And and that's why some of these other nations are going to come against them, right? To take the spoil, right? So they're prosperous. They're safety. They're in the land. They're safe and they're prosperous. So just remember, if anyone ever mentions Ezekiel 38, the text itself declares certain conditions have to be present for this to even be even remotely on the radar. So when people are like, Israel's in total mess, and there's all these armies, this is setting the stage for Ezekiel 38. No, something else would have to set the stage for Ezekiel 38. In the land, safe and prosperous, and it seems God will be in the midst. All right. That's a, that we're, the current situation is not pointing to Ezekiel 38, okay? That, that, that would be very difficult to get there from here, all right? Oh, we're running out of time. Okay, um, that's okay. This is, wor- this is worth it, all right? Uh, next, other nations will watch and wonder how they might benefit themselves from God's conquest of Israel. They say verse 38, 12 through 13, that other nations are going to look and see how they could benefit from this situation. If God's coming up against them, how, oh, how, how can we benefit? Do you think that that's an accurate observational statement? 12 and 13. Yeah, they, they see it as an opportunity to get some of the stuff, right? Yeah. So the other nations are going to see as an opportunity, right? Yes, no? Yeah. In the NIV? Okay, so we have disagreement here. Okay. Do I? Go ahead. Well, they seem to be questioning, hey, what can we, what can we get out of this? Are you coming up to get, are you going to take everything? Or can we get, like, it seems like they're wanting to get in on this to some, to, to some level. But if we have disagreement, okay, there's disagreement. We'll leave, we'll leave it off. We'll leave it off. We'll leave it off. Right, and these are other nations that are not coming up with them who are saying, are you basically going to take everything? But since there's disagreement, then we'll just leave it. We'll just leave it off. 
Okay. Well, I mean, if, I mean, if y'all think it's interpretation, then we won't. I don't think it's interpretation. I think it literally says, hey, are you going to take everything? I think they're looking to benefit from it. That's the way I see it. Right. Okay, well, what would be the point of questioning? Okay, maybe shocked? Okay, maybe shocked. Okay. So, okay, can, they, can we say this? Other nations will ask questions as a result of Gog's invasion. Okay, there we go. There we go. We'll state it that way. Right. Okay, other nations will watch and ask questions. Okay, there we go. We'll do that. All right, we're going to run out of time. All right. Next, uh, God would God will defend Israel and defeat Gog and thereby glorify himself among the nations. They point to Ezekiel 38:16. Do you think that that's accurate? What does 16 point that out or do we need another verse? Yeah, he's gonna. He's obviously he's gonna do something to Gog to fix this. So, um, glory will glorify himself among the nations, and then we can put sixteen and I think twenty. Is it what twenty three? Yeah. I mean, you can. I mean, you could literally. You could put. 16 to 23 for that if you want, right? Because you have him defending them right there, right? So 16 to 23, if you just want to make sure all the points are, are, are clearly identified, right? God will defend Israel and defeat Gog and thereby glorify himself among the nations, all right? Next, this victory will fulfill the prophetic expectations of several previous prophets of Israel. Ezekiel 38, 17. Is that not what it says in 17? Okay, so I think we can agree on that one. I'll read it again. This victory will fulfill the prophetic expectations of several previous prophets of Israel. This victory will fulfill the prophetic expectation of several previous prophets of Israel. Ezekiel 38, 17. All right, and that's the end. That, that kind of summarizes everything in the chapter and uh, bullet point statements. Now, these bullet points help us suppose when in God's future prophetic plan this battle... Well, I mean, hang on, let me say it this way. I'm going to say it this way. These markers, I'm going to state this way, give us a clue of what will happen. They do not necessarily tell us exactly when it will happen. The information is not complete enough, but there are some options, and that's where we're going to have to stop. We're going to go through every option of every suggestion of when this event will occur. But Oh, we're going to go through a lot probably we haven't hit on. We, we've only really went through two, Right? When uh, almost everyone agrees here that we have no historical record of it and nobody points to any historical record. Not even the Bible dictionaries pointed to a historical solution, right? One, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes tried to do that, but they didn't tell us when, where, how. None of that fits. None of it fits, right? So we don't think we can find anything in history. Future, we've offered two options. What are those two options uh, for future? Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. Right? 19, there's some language that seems to fit, but there's other parts that don't fit. 20, the good thing about 20 is it doesn't give us a lot of information, and, but, and, but it does do what in 20? Uses the words Gog and Magog. Okay, I cannot stress that. The best argument for Revelation 20 is because it literally says Gog and Magog. You can't ask for more than that, okay? But we'll go through all the options, but just not tonight because, well, we've ran out of time.
and it would take another hour to go through how many different options do we have here? Let me count really quick. One, two, three, four options. Maybe five. Okay. Four to five options. We've covered two. Right. So, any questions? So now do you understand Ezekiel 38? Okay. What, can, what do you understand? All those key points, right? Now, why is that significant? If someone comes along and starts making claims about Ezekiel 38, okay, you know exactly what's in the text. <laughs> As now that you've memorized your notes, you now will ever, forever, when someone mentions Ezekiel 38, it will be good. All right, let's pray. All right, Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, we do thank you that we have a place to come to do things like this. Lord, this is difficult work. Hopefully we learn from our mistakes in the past and how we've handled the text. And this will help prepare us, handle the text better in the future. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.